Chapter Seven of Curiosities of Olden Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Curiosities of Olden Times by Sabine Baring Gould. Chapter Six. What are women made of? In the palmy days of childhood we were taught in nursery jingle, and we implicitly believed that little girls were made of sugar and spice and all that's nice. But growing older we learned to our disappointment that they were produced from Adam's rib, and when we asked why woman was made of that particular bone we were told it was because it was the most crooked in Adam's body. Observe the result, preached Jean Rollin in the beginning of the sixteenth century. Man composed of clay is silent and ponderous, but woman gives evidence of her osseous origin by the rattle she keeps up. Move a sack of earth, and it makes no noise. Touch a bag of bones, and you are deafened with the clitter-clatter. This observation did not fall to the ground. It was repeated by Gratian de Drusac in his Controverses de Sex Masculine et Feminine, 1538. The learned in medieval times did not spare women. Jean Nevison, professor of law at Turin, who died in 1540, is harder still on them in his Silva Neptualis, therein he audaciously asserts that woman was formed by the author of good till the head had to be made and that was a production of the great enemy of mankind. Quote, Permisi Deus illud facere, demonio. But the rabbis are equally unsparing. They assert that when Eve had to be drawn from the side of Adam, she was not extracted by the head, lest she should be vain, nor by the eyes, lest they should be wanton, nor by the mouth, lest she should be given to tittle-tattle, nor by the ears, lest she should be inquisitive nor by the hands, lest she should be meddlesome, nor by the feet, lest she should be a gadabout, nor by the heart, lest she should be jealous. But she was drawn forth by the side. Yet notwithstanding these precautions, she has every fault specially guarded against, because, being extracted sideways, she was perverse. Another rabbinical gloss on the text of Moses asserts that Adam was created double, that he and Eve were made back to back, united at the shoulders, and that they were severed with a hatchet. Eugubinus says that their bodies were united at the side. Antoinette Bourignon, that extraordinary mystic of the seventeenth century, had some strange visions of the primeval man and the birth of Eve. The body of Adam, she says, was more pure, translucent, and transparent than crystal light and buoyant as air. In it were vessels and streams of light which entered and exuded through the pores. The vessels were charged with liquors of various colors of intense brilliancy and transparency. Some of these fluids were water, milk, wine, fire, etc. Every motion of Adam's body produced ineffable harmonies. Every creature obeyed him. Nothing could resist or injure him. He was taller than men of this time. His hair was short, curled, and approaching to black. He had a little down on his lower lip. In his stomach was a clear fluid, like water in a crystal bowl, in which tiny eggs developed themselves like bubbles in wine, 
as he glowed with the ardor of divine charity. And when he strongly desired that others should unite with him in the work of praise, he deposited one of these eggs which hatched, and from it emerged his consort Eve. The inhabitants of Madagascar have a strange myth touching the origin of women. They say that the first man was created of the dust of the earth, and was placed in a garden where he was subject to none of the ills which now afflict mortality. He was also free from all bodily appetites, and, though surrounded by delicious fruit and limpid streams, yet felt no desire to taste of the fruit or quaff the water. The Creator had, moreover, strictly forbidden him either to eat or to drink. The great enemy, however, came to him, and painted to him in glowing colors the sweetness of the apple, the lusciousness of the date, and the succulence of the orange. In vain the first man remembered the command laid upon him by his Maker. Then the fiend assumed the appearance of an effulgent spirit, and pretended to be a messenger from heaven commanding him to eat and drink. The man at once obeyed. Shortly after a pimple appeared on his leg. The spot enlarged into a tumor which increased in size and caused him considerable annoyance. At the end of six months it burst, and there emerged from the limb a beautiful girl. The father of all living turned her this way and that way, sorely perplexed and uncertain whether to pitch her into the water or give her to the pigs, when a messenger from heaven appeared and told him to let her run around the garden till she was of a marriageable age, and then to take her to himself as a wife. He obeyed. He called her Bahuna, and she became the mother of all races of men. There seems to be some uncertainty as to the size of our great mother. The French Orientalist, Herion, member of the Academy, however, fixed it with a precision satisfactory at least to himself. He gives the following table of the relative heights of several eminent historical personages. Adam was precisely 123 feet 9 inches high. Eve was precisely 118 feet 9.75 inches high. Noah was precisely 103 feet. Abraham was precisely 27 feet. Moses was precisely 13 feet. Hercules was precisely 10 feet. Alexander was precisely six feet, Julius Caesar was precisely five feet. It is interesting to have the height of Eve to the decimal of an inch. It must, however, be stated that the measures of the traditional tomb of Eve at Jeddah give her a much greater stature. Quote, on entering the great gate of the cemetery, one observes on the left a little wall three feet high, forming a square of ten to twelve feet. There lies the head of our first mother. In the middle of the cemetery is a sort of cupola, where reposes the middle of her body, and at the other extremity, near the door of egress, is another little wall, also three feet high, forming a lozenge-shaped enclosure. There are her feet. In this place is a large piece of cloth, whereupon the faithful deposit their offerings, which serve for the maintenance of a constant burning of perfumes over the midst of her body. The distance between her head and feet is four hundred feet. How we have shrunk since the creation! Close quote. Letter to H. A. D. Consul de France in Abyssinia, 1841. 
but to return to the substance of which woman was made. This is a point on which the various cosmogonies of nations widely differ. Probably the discoverers of these cosmogonies were men, for they seldom give to woman a very distinguished origin. But then the poets make it up to her. Nature, the singer of the land of cakes, tells us, Her prentice hand she tried on man, and then she made the lasses, O. Oh. Colomb de Soluste de Basta, born 1544-1590, composed a lengthy poem on the creation, in which he does ample justice to the ladies. His poem was translated into Latin by Dumonin, and into German, Spanish, Italian, and English. A specimen will suffice. The mother of mortals in herself doth combine the charms of an atom, and graces all divine. Her tint his surpasses, her brow is more fair, her eye twinkles brighter, more lustrous her hair. Far sweeter her utterance, her chin is quite smooth, dream of beauty incarnate, a lover and a love. Our own Milton has done poor Eve justice in lines which need no quotation. Pygmalion, says the classic story, which is really a Phoenician myth of creation, made a woman of marble or ivory, and Aphrodite, in answer to his prayers, endowed the statue with life. We do not believe it. No woman was ever marble. She may seem hard and cold, but she only requires a sturdy male voice to bid her descend, be stone no more. To show that the marble appearance was put on, and that she is, and ever was, genuine palpitating flesh and blood, quote, often does Pygmalion apply his hands to the work, one while he addresses it in soft terms, at another he brings it presents that are agreeable to maidens, as shells and smooth pebbles, and little birds and flowers of a thousand hues and lilies, and painted balls, and tears of the Helades that have distilled from the trees. He decks her limbs, too, with clothing, and puts a long necklace on her neck. Smooth pendants hang from her ears, and bows from her breast. All things are becoming to her." Close quote. Ovid, Metam, Book 10, 254-266. There is something tender and kindly in this myth. It represents woman as man would have her. Pure as the ivory, modestly arrayed, simple, and delighted with small trifles, birds and pebbles and flowers, a thing of beauty and a joy for ever. But Hesiod gives a widely different account of the creation of woman. According to him, she was sent in mockery by Zeus to be a scourge to man. Quote, the sire who rules the earth and sways the pole had spoken, laughter filled his secret soul. He bade the crippled god his best obey, and mould with tempering water plastic clay. With human nerve and human voice invest, the limbs elastic and the breathing breast. Fair is the blooming goddesses above, a virgin's likeness with the looks of love. He bade Minerva teach the skill that shreds a thousand colors in the gliding threads. He called the magic of love's golden queen to breathe around a witchery of mean and eager passions never sated flame, and cares of dress that prey upon the frame, bade Hermes last endue with craft refined, O treacherous manners, and a shameless mind." Quote, Hesiod Erga 
If such was the Greek theory of the creation of woman, it speaks ill for the Greek men, for woman is ever what man makes her. If he chooses her to be giddy and light and crafty, giddy, light, and crafty will she become. But if he demands of her to be what God made her, modest and thrifty and tender, such she will ever prove. This our grand old northern forefathers knew, and they made her creation a sacred matter, and fashioned her from a nobler stock than man. He was of the ash, she of the elm. They call the first woman Embla, or Emla, which means a laborious female. From the root Arm, alm, alm, signifying work. Quote, One day, as the sons of Bor were walking along the sea beach, they found two stems of wood, out of which they shaped a man and a woman. The first, Odin, infused into them life and spirit. The second, Vili, endowed them with reason and the power of motion. The third, Ve, gave them speech and features, hearing and vision. Close quote. This reminds one of the ancient Iranian myth of Aura Mazda creating the first pair, Meshia and Meskinane, from the Bavias tree. But the Scandinavians also spoke of three primeval mothers, Era, great-grandmother, Ama, grandmother, and Mother, from whom sprang the three classes of Thrall, Churl, and Earl. It is noticeable that these primeval women are represented as good housewives in the venerable Rigsmal, which describes the wandering of the god Himdal under the name of Rig. The deity comes to the hut of Edda, and at once, quote, From the ashes she took a loaf, heavy and thick, with bran mixed. More besides she laid upon the board. There is set a bowl of broth on the table. There is calf boiled, and cates the best. Close quote. Then he goes to the house of Amma, the wife of Afi. Afi's wife sat plying her rock, with outspread arms busked to weave, a hood on her head, a sark over her breast, a kerchief round her neck, and studs on her shoulders. He next enters the hall of Mother. The housewife looked on her arms, smoothed her veil, and fastened her sleeves. Her headgear adjusted, a clasp was on her bosom. Her robe was simple, her sark blue, brighter her brow, fairer her breast, whiter her neck than purest snowdrift. She took, did mother, a figured cloth of white linen, and the table decked. She then took cakes of snow-white wheat. On the table them she laid. She set forth salvers, silver-adorned, full of game and pork and roasted birds. In a can was wine, and cups were costly. Not a word of disparagement of woman is found in those old cosmic lays. The sturdy northerner knew her value, and he respected her, whilst the frivolous Greek despised her as a toy. The provincial troubadours caught the classic misappreciation of woman. Massalia was a Greek colony, and Greek manners, tastes, and habits of thought prevailed for long in the southeast of France. The troubadours idolized her as an idle puppet, but they knew not how to commend, and by commending develop in her those qualities which lie ready to germinate when called for by man. Devotion, self-sacrifice, patience, gentleness, and all those homely yet inestimable treasures, the domestic virtues. 
Pierre de Saint-Cloud, in the opening of his poem on Renard, has his fling at poor Eve. He says that Adam was possessed of a magic rod with which he could create animals at pleasure by striking the earth with it. One day he smote the ground, and there sprang forth the lamb. Eve caught the rod from his hand, and did as he had done. Forthwith there bounded forth the wolf, which rent the creation of Adam. He struck, and the domestic fowls came forth. Eve did likewise, and gave being to the fox. He made the cattle, she the tiger. He the dog, she the jackal. Turning to America, we encounter a host of myths relative to the first mother. The sacred book of Quiches tells of the gods Gukumats, Tepu, and Kuska making man of earth, but when the rain came on he dissolved into mud. Then they made man and woman of wood, but the beings so made were too thick-headed to praise and sacrifice, wherefore they destroyed them with a flood. Those who escaped up tall trees remain to this day, and are commonly called monkeys. The three gods, having thus failed, consulted the great white boar and the great white porcupine, and with their assistance made man and woman of white and red maize. And men show by their headstrong character that the mighty boar had a finger in their creation and women by their fretfulness indicate the great porcupine as having had the making of them. The Minotrees have a story that the first woman was made of such rich and fatty soil that she became a miracle of prolifness. She came out of the earth on the first day of the moon of buffaloes, and ere it waned she had a child at her breast. Every month she bestowed upon her husband a son or a daughter, and these children were fertile equally with their mother. This was rather sharp work, and the great spirit, seeing that the world would be peopled in no time at this rate, killed the first parents and diminished the productiveness of their children. The Nanticokes relate that their great ancestor was without a wife, and he wandered over the face of the earth in search of one. At last the king of the muskrats offered him his daughter, assuring him that she would make the best wife in the world as she could keep a house tidy, was very shrewd and neat in her person. The Nanticote hesitated to accept the obliging offer, alleging that the wife was so very small and had four legs. The Mikaboo of the Muskrats now appeared and undertook to remedy this defect. "'Man of the Nanticotes,' said the spirit, "'rise, take thy bride, and lead her to the edge of the lake.' Bid her dip her feet in water, whilst thou, standing over her, shalt pronounce these words. For the last time as muskrat, for the first time as woman, go in beast, come out human. The spirit's directions were obeyed to the letter. The Nanticote took his glossy little maiden muskrat by the paw, led her to the border of the lake, and while she dipped her feet in the water, he used the appointed formulary. Thereupon a change took place in the little animal. Her body was observed to assume the posture of a human being, gradually erecting itself as a sapling, which, having been bent to earth, resumes its upright position. When the little creature became erect, the skin began to fall from the head and neck, and gradually unveiling the body exhibited the maiden, beautiful as a flowery meadow or the blue summer sky, or the north lit up with the flush of the dancing lights, 
or the rainbow which follows the fertilizing shower. Her hand was scarcely larger than a hazel leaf, and her foot not longer than that of the ring-dove. Her arm was so slight that it seemed as though the breeze must break it. The Nanticoke gazed with delight on his beauteous bride, and his gratification was enhanced when he saw her stature increased to the proportions of a human being. Other American Indian tribes assert that the Great Spirit moved with compassion for man, who, wasted in solitude on earth, sent a heavenly spirit to be his companion and the mother of his children, and I believe they are about right. But the Kickapoos tell a very different tale. There was a time throughout the great world, say they, when neither on land nor in the water was there a woman to be found. Of vain things there were plenty. There were the turkey and the blue jay, the wood duck and the walk-on bird, and noisy, chattering creatures there were plenty. There were the jackdaw, the magpie, and the rook, and gadabouts there were plenty. There were the squirrel, the starling, and the mouse. But of women, vain, noisy, chattering gadabout women, there were none. It was quite a still world to what it is now, and it was a peaceable world, too. Men were in plenty, made of clay and sun-dried, and they were so happy, oh, so happy. Wars were none, then, quarrels were none. The Kickapoos ate their deer's flesh with the Potawatomics, hunted the otter with the Osages, and the beaver with the Hurons. Then the great fathers of Kickapoos scratched the backs of the savage Iroquois, and the truculent Iroquois returned the compliment. Tribes which now seek one another's scalps then sat smiling benevolently in each other's faces, smoking the never-laid-aside calumet of peace. These first men were not quite like the men now, for they had tails. Very handsome tails they were, covered with long, silky hair. Very convenient were these appendages in a country where flies were numerous and troublesome, tails being more sudden in their movements than hands, and more conveniently situated for whisking off the flies which alight on the back. It was a pleasant sight to see the ancestral men leisurely smoking and waving their flexible tails at the doors of their wigwams in the golden autumn evenings, and within were no squalling children, no wrangling wives. The men doted on their tails, and they painted and adorned them, they plaited the hair into beautiful tresses, and wove bright beads and shells and wampum with the hair. They attached bows and streamers of colored ribbons to the extremities of their tails, and when men ran and pursued the elk or the moose, there was a flutter of color behind them and a tinkle of precious ornaments. But the red men got proud. They were so happy, all went so well with them, that they forgot the great spirit. They no more offered the fattest and choicest of their game upon the megahopa, or altar-stone, nor danced in his praise who dispersed the rains to cleanse the earth, and his lightnings to cool and purify the air. Whereupon he sent his chief, Manitou, to humble them by robbing them of what they most valued, and bestowed upon them a scourge and affliction adequate to their offense. The spirit obeyed his master, and, coming on earth, reached the ground in the land of the Kickapoos. He looked about him, and soon ascertained that the red men valued their tails above every other possession. Summoning together all the Indians, he acquainted them with the will of the Wakanda, 
and demanded the instant sacrifice of the cherished member. It is impossible to describe the sorrow and compunction which filled their bosoms when they found that the forfeit for their oblivion of the great spirit was to be that beautiful and beloved appendage. Tail after tail was laid upon the block and amputated. The mission of the spirit was, in part, performed. He now took the severed tails and converted them into vain, chattering, and frisky women. Upon these objects the Kickapoos at once lavished their admiration. They loaded them as before with beads and wampum and paint, and decorated them with tinkling ornaments and colored ribbons. Yet the women had lost one essential quality which as tails they had possessed. The caudal appendage had brushed off man the worrying insects which sought to sting or suck his blood, whereas the new article was itself provided with a sharp sting called by us a tongue, and far from brushing annoyances off man, it became an instrument for accumulating them upon his back and shoulders. Pleasant and soothing to the primeval Kickapoo was the wagging to and fro of the member stroking and fanning his back, but the new one became a scourge to lacerate. However, woman retains indications of her origin. She is still beloved as of yore, she is still beautiful with flowing hair, still adapted to trinkery, still she is frisky, vivacious, and slappy, and still as of old does she ever follow man, dangling after him, hanging at his heels, and never, of her own accord, separating from him. The Kickapoos, divested of their tails, the legend goes on to relate, were tormented by the mosquitoes till the great spirit, in compassion for their woes, mercifully withdrew the greater part of their insect tormentors. Overjoyed at their deliverance, the red men supplicated the Wakanda also to remove the other nuisances, the women. But he replied that the women were a necessary evil and must remain. This is worse treatment than that which the ladies received from Hesiod. We have all heard of a young and romantic lady who was so enraptured with the ideal of American Indian life, as delineated by Fenimore Cooper, that she fled her home and went to the savages in Canada. We hope she did not fall to the lot of a Kickapoo. Poor woman! It is pleasanter to believe that she is made from our ribs, which we know come very close to our hearts, and thus to explain the mutual sympathy of man and woman and thereby to account for that compassion and tenderness man feels for her, and also for the manner in which she flies to man's side as her true resting-place in peril and doubt. But we have a cosmogony of our own, elucidated from internal convictions, assisted by all the modern appliances of table-wrapping and clairvoyancy. According to our cosmogony, woman is compounded of three articles, sugar, tincture of arnica, and soft soap. Sugar, because of the sweetness which is apparent in most women, alas, that in some it should have acidated into strong domestic vinegar. Arnica, because in women is to be found that quality of healing and soothing after the bruises and wounds which afflict us men in the great battle of life, and soft soap for reasons too obvious to need specification. End of What Are Women Made Of?